The Life of Christ. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 5. Again, Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to help us to understand these things now as we move towards looking at some of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is our number five of the life of Christ, and we're actually starting lesson six on page 19, and we're going to introduce some of the parables. Uh, and from the very beginning, if you'll remember, I said the life, I mean, how can you teach the life of Christ in 12 hours? Uh, given to, that's the reason I've given you if you've bought the whole curriculum I mean the, all of the notes we go into the, the 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 crucifixion and things there's so many things that we could teach but I'm I thought when I prayed over what to teach as far as in just 12 hours not to go and just teach on some of the aspects of the crucifixion in particular in light of everybody seeing the passion when it came out a while back but the parables there there are so much understanding to be seen in the parables that really show the heart of what Jesus was trying to communicate to those who follow him. And so I felt it wiser to just uh, go this direction as far as skipping the parables and going to some other things. So let me just start at the top here, the parables of Christ. When the parables were first spoken by Jesus, the disciples had great difficulty in understanding them. However, Christ explained the parables to them, to his disciples, and his explanations give us insight into the meaning of others. Nevertheless, as Jesus said in Matthew 13, 11 through 14, the parables were not to be understood by all. That's important later. They were meant both to instruct and to puzzle. If one has a true spiritual hunger, he will search out and discover their truths. Now, that, now that may sound strange, but I'm going to show you several scriptures here uh, that speak to this, and I've referred to it in some of the other courses. Let me, let me, let me just... Let me just say this real quick, and you'll see what I mean again. I've, I'll, I'll repeat something I said before. Let's say you have a 10-pound note in your pocket, and you're happy you have a 10-pound note. If you walk out of this building tonight, and you walk out on the sidewalk, and you see a 10-pound note on the street, and you pick it up, that 10-pound note that you find is going to be more valuable to you than the 10-pound note that you have in your pocket because it's something you discovered, you found. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to say? There'll be something unique about that because it wasn't something that you just knew that you had. And basically, so what we're talking about here is in God's wisdom, like if you study Proverbs, we won't, I've got a few listed down here, but the Bible says, again, if you lift your voice for understanding, if you cry out for insight, it says, if you'll seek wisdom as hid treasure, then shall you know this and this and this and this and this. There's something about the principle of discovery that causes there to be a much greater sense of worth. So some of the things in the scripture are hidden for a reason, but we're going to look at some scriptures here so that you can just literally see what it says. It says again, they were meant, the parables were meant both to instruct and to puzzle. If one has a true spiritual hunger, he will search out and discover the truths. Jesus implied that those who were simply curious, they would only mystify I often quote Hebrews 11:6 by the, this way. It says that he that cometh unto God, he that cometh to God, must believe that he is, 
and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Remember? And so I will say it this way. The Bible does not say he rewards those who casually inquire. He rewards the diligent seekers. You ever, I'm gonna, can I say a dirty four-letter word? Work. <laughs> he wants us to work at this. But Revelation, secrets, and I said look up these verses in your own time, but I want to read them real quickly. Deuteronomy 29, 29 simply says that the secret things belong to the Lord. So the Bible speaks about secret things. Now I'm going to read these verses from the Amplified. John 7, you don't have to turn there, but they're on here, but look at them later. But John 7, verse 17 and 18. Jesus, verse 16, it says, Jesus answered them by saying, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. Verse 17. If any man desires, you see, this is where desire comes in. The Bible says when desire comes, it's a tree of life. He said, if any man desires to do his will, God's pleasure, he will know. Now listen to what it says in the Amplified. If any man actually really seriously desires, if the desire is there to do God's will, he will have the needed illumination to recognize and can tell for himself whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking from myself and on my own accord and on my own authority. For he who speaks on his own authority seeks to win honor for himself. He whose teaching originates with himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory and is eager for the honor of him who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness or falsehood or deception in him. Now, we could preach on that because this is one of the ways you begin to know who's a preacher and who isn't, <laughs> who's a teacher and who isn't. But it says if you really want, if the desire is there, something else is triggered called the necessary illumination for you to really see. In other words, if there's no desire, there's something, there's, it's, it doesn't trigger the Holy Spirit to begin to reveal things to you. Turn to Psalm 25. I don't want to waste the time. Psalm 25. There's a typographical error there, so I apologize. Psalm 25, verse 14. says, this is the Amplified. I love this in the Amplified Bible. Verse 14 of the King James says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show him his covenant. But listen to the Amplified. The secret of the sweet, satisfying companionship of the Lord have they who fear and revere and worship him. Remember the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it doesn't mean fear. The word fear there means to reverence. When you really, that's the beginning. You have no wisdom if there's no reverence for God. You know, the beginning of wisdom is the, the, is the fear of the Lord. But verse 14 says, The secret of the sweet, satisfying companionship of the Lord have they who fear, who revere, and worship him. And he, God, will show them his covenant and reveal to them its deep inner meaning. Do you hear that? It's deep inner meaning. You see, Scripture's like gold. There are some people that will, in the old gold rush days of California, they say that at some places you could walk and just on the top right near the riverbed, you could find tiny nuggets of gold, tiny little bits of gold. And some people were satisfied with just finding that bit on the top of the soil. But the people who really struck it rich are those who dug deep. Hear me? They struck what was called the mother load. And there's all the difference in the world, again, even the same way it is with Scripture. See, you can just 
toy with the scriptures or just casually look into it, and you'll get some good stuff out of it. But God begins to see when, where there's real hunger, and he begins to show those people the deep, the secret, and the inner meanings of things. And see, this is where it's difficult for some people to understand, because if you are one of those people, then you will begin to know some things that you cannot communicate to others, even though they're Christians, because they don't have the same level of hunger. I often quote that out of Romans. Remember, you hear me quote it when Paul said, excuse me, out of Corinthians, the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, where Paul said, when we are among those who are spiritually ripe in understanding or mature, we're able to impart a higher degree of knowledge. In other words, he said, I have to know who I'm speaking to because there are some people I can show the deeper things of the Spirit to. He said, but others I can't because they're, it's, they're incapable of understanding them. That's literally what it says in the second chapter. So it's not that sometimes you don't have answers, but again, I, you always put it back to simple illustrations, don't you? It's like a little boy, a little girl that's three years old or something. They go to put their finger in a wall socket and you don't pull out, remember, a textbook on electronic engineering and try to communicate them Boyle's Law, gas, or, or something like that. You just say, don't touch Bernie, Bernie. And they say, well, why? Just trust me. Don't put your finger in the hole. Bernie, Bernie. <laughs> but see, what happens in things of the Spirit or things of the Bible, you, you tell somebody, don't, well, that's not really the truth. Well, explain it to me. And you go, well, I can't. And then they think, well, then you don't know. And you go, no, I know. It's just that you're not able to hear it yet. And then what do you have? You have the opportunity to be offended because you go, well, who do you think you are? It's like walking up to Dennis and saying, Jonathan, why does my tooth hurt? And he'll say, well, let me have a look and have a look at your tooth and say, well, it's because you have a cavity or you have something. Well, what's a cavity? And he'll say, well, it's a hole in your tooth. But don't you see what I'm trying to say? But he, in his mind, He's got 20 years of, of inexperience plus however many years of medical school. He could tell you everything about nerve endings, this all kinds of information, but he doesn't have time to take you through, through, through eight years of medical school and show, tell you why this is why it hurts. He can only give you the surface of it. Now, if you really wanted to know, though, could you know? Yeah, but you'd have to do what he did, right? That's all I'm saying. So it's the same things with things of the, of the Bible and things of the Spirit. It's not that, I mean, you, and this is why it's tough. This is why it's hard for like some people that you meet are 20 years old, but they've given themselves to God and they have more spiritual understanding than some people that are 50 years old. And a 50-year-old will get offended because a 20-year-old actually has more wisdom. And a 50-year-old might have more knowledge. But remember, knowledge, the word knowledge just means an accumulation of facts. But wisdom is the ability to put knowledge to work. This is why the Bible says wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding, for she shall bring you to honor when you embrace her wisdom. So, anyhow, the deep, the deep, the secret things. Now, it's Proverbs 2. Let's turn right over to Proverbs 2. I hope this isn't a typo. Proverbs chapter 2. Sorry, I'm trying to get the page to turn in. Proverbs chapter 2, the first five verses. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to skillful and godly wisdom, 
and inclining and directing your heart and mind to understanding, listen to this phrase, applying all your powers to the quest for it. Yes, if you cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you will seek wisdom as for silver and search for skillful and godly wisdom as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the reverent and the worshipful fear of the Lord, and you will find the knowledge of our omniscient God. My oldest illustration when I teach on this stuff, well, first let me go to Mark 4. Let's go to Mark 4. But while we do that, let me tell you a little story. Let's say, I don't know where you live. If you live in a flat that you rent, a house that you own, I don't know. But let's say you rent a flat or you rent a studio apartment or something like that, right? What if you believed everything I said <laughs> and I told you that right now, tonight, I know where you live and in one of the walls of your bedroom or your flat, one of the walls of your flat where you live, right now, in a wall of your flat, there's 25 million pounds cash bond money and it's tax-free, and if you find it, it's yours, and I guarantee you it's the absolute truth. There's 25 million pounds in one of the walls of your flat, and it's yours if you find it. How many of you would stay for the end of the class? <laughs> Think about it. I mean, really. I mean, really, really, really. Not a movie, not a movie, not a joke. If there was 25 million pounds in one of the walls of your flat, would you be concerned about putting holes in the wall? Why? Because 25 million, you'd buy the whole flat, pay it, whatever. But do you, if you knew, if you seriously understood there's 25 million, I don't think you'd be that British. If you actually, if any of us, if it ever dawned on us what this book contains, the Bible says God's wisdom is, is more, to, more to be desired than silver and gold. It's more precious than rubies. It's, it's what puts you over in life. I mean, this is the thing. But now look at Mark 4.22. Mark 4.22 says, listen to this one. Jesus said, listen to this in the Amplified Bible. Mark 4.22 says, things are hidden temporarily only as a means to revelation. Did you hear that? Things are hidden temporarily only as a means to revelation. Now, this is Jesus saying this. Now, the, the King James says, For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested. Neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. So I'm going to read all of 22 again. Things are hidden temporarily only as a means to revelation, for there is nothing hidden except to be revealed, nor is anything temporarily kept secret except in order that it may be made known. Now, that's an incredible precept and principle right there. There are things that are hidden, but the only reason they're hidden is so that they might be found. Think about it. You hide something. Well, you're hiding it, but it's only so that you can come back to it someday. God has hidden some things in his word for us. The Bible says that wisdom is stored up for the righteous, not from the righteous. But we still have to dig it out. So now, Matthew 13, 10 through 14 on the outline the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. 
This is why I speak to them in parables. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Jesus said that the understanding, and this is something that I, I think we'll get to in the faith course, but this is very important. This is why we talk on seed so much, the principle of the seed. Because Mark 4.13 right here, I just have it from the NIV, but listen to what Jesus said about this, the principle of the, or the parable of the sower sowing the word. Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Now that, when we take it out in the Greek, he says that this parable of sowing the seed, of how seed works, is the key to understanding all other parables. Just the revelation of how God's word works as seed. The definition of the word parable. A parable is often no more than an extended metaphor or a simile using figurative language in the form of a story to illustrate a particular truth. The Greek word for parable literally means, quote, a laying by the side of or a casting alongside. Thus, it means a comparison or a likeness. In a parable, something is placed alongside something else in order that one may throw light on the other. A familiar custom or incident is used to illustrate some truth less familiar. That's out of Nelson's uh, Bible Dictionary. So the Pharisees were always upset that Jesus welcomed and ate with sinners. He spoke to this, he spoke to this in three parables in Luke 15. These are the parables of the lost sheep the lost piece of silver, and the prodigal son. So these are the ones we're going to look at, we're going to introduce tonight. So turn, if you would, to Luke 15. While we have it on the outline, I'll probably just stay with the outline. But the first one, Luke 15 here, I'm going to just read the first few verses anyhow. It says, Now the tax collectors and the notorious and especially wicked sinners were all coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes kept muttering and indignantly complaining, saying, This man accepts and receives and welcomes preeminently wicked sinners and eats with them. They were very angry because Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus was a friend to the world, not of the world, but he was a friend to the world. And if we're going to follow him, you cannot constantly curse everybody else that doesn't know him yet. Do you know what I mean? I ran into this with the ministers. I shouldn't take time to tell a story. I've got to tell you another little short story. I had an old girlfriend named Bev Williams many years ago. She was a singer. She recorded with Capitol Records years and years and years and years, tons ago. Bev and I were like best buddies, and we were really close friends. I hadn't seen Bev early Williams in years and years and years and years. I went to my hometown of Bakersfield, California. This is like, I'd, I was in, I've been in England about two years, so it must have been 18 years ago or something like this. And I went to, this, to preach in this church in my hometown of Bakersfield, California, where, you know, people knew me and everything, where I went through and had my whole testimony, what have you. And um, they put me up, this was before we had any place to stay there, and they put me up in a little hotel, a little tiny, like a motel thing in this place. But in America, you know, everybody that has church services, everybody after the service goes out to a restaurant and eats. That's just normally what people do. They all go and get a quick bite to eat or something. Well, most hotels, you know, have like a cafe, a little restaurant, or a couple of little ones. And anyhow, long story short, they take me to this hotel, and I look up on the marquee, and it says that in the bar area, in the lounge area, Beverly Williams and some band is singing. And I thought, well, what a trip. I haven't seen her in like 15 years. So anyhow, I get down to this. I preach the morning service, the evening service. And so I get down to the evening service, and they take me home real quick to the hotel room. So I go upstairs and change, and I come back down because I'm going to go see Bev. I want to say hi to her. 
And nothing wrong with saying hi to Bev, but anyhow, so <laughs> I walk into this lounge area, and I sit there and have a Coke. And I have a Coke, and Bev's doing this set of music on there. And just this great, and I haven't seen her in so many years, because, I mean, she knew my mom and dad, and we were just all, you know, we go, went back a long ways. But anyhow, this is the point. She sees me. She comes down and sits down and says, hi, how you been? You know, how's your sisters and all this kind of stuff? We're just talking, just, just chatting. Nothing wrong, but, of course, it's like 10, 30, 11 at night now because the service is over, and she's about to finish. So she gets done, and I said, well, i got to go to my room. So she walks me out to this walks me out to this lounge door, which the lounge door walks right out into the foyer of the hotel where the cafes are. So, well, as I'm walking out, I'm walking out with Bev and, uh, from this hotel, from this lounge, and the pastor and the associate pastor and their two wives walk, are walking into this restaurant, and they look up at me, and they look at this girl. You know, she's all dressed out she's to the nines because she's singing on, on stage, you know. And they look at her, and they look at me. <laughs> I got to tell you, it was not faith they had in their heart. <laughs> they, I mean, you could see instantaneously, they did not believe the best, to say the least. And I just said, hey, for, I said, hey, pastor, how you doing? This is my friend, Bev, and just all this. But these guys almost choked to death. You know what I mean? Talk about blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. But I'm just saying it's amazing, you know, how people get so upset when you want to actually talk with people that, don't have giant crosses on their forehead. Oh well, anyhow. Jesus sat, Jesus ate with sinners. You hear me? He sat down with them and ate with sinners. It really upset religious people. And religious people still get upset today. He spake this parable unto these Pharisees and he said, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if you lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness? And go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. And now remember the context, the context of these parables, these three parables. The Pharisees, let me read verse 2 again. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says, and the Pharisees and the scribes kept muttering and indignantly complaining, saying, This man accepts and receives and welcomes. He welcomes preeminently wicked sinners, and he even eats with them. So he starts off by saying, Who of you would have a hundred sheep and one gets lost who wouldn't leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go out and seek the one? Now, the sheep, it's amazing that God likens us. How many of you know that in the Bible that God's people are likened as unto sheep, right? You, know, you all know that, right? The Lord is our shepherd. Philip Keller wrote a book. He's a New Zealand. He's a preacher from New Zealand. He wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It's a classic. You guys ought to read it because he talks about sheep. Did you know, like I have down here, do you know that sheep are the dumbest animal there is, agriculture, agri when you look in agronomy? Jesus chose sheep to represent us. Other animals can't find, can find their way home. Sheep do not know how to find their way home. They wander, they bleat for help, and they're startled by anything that moves. Sheep will hurry to the point of exhaustion. It is an incredible thing to read. When a sheep is lost, they will run until they die because they don't know not to. It will not rest apart from the flock. And of course, again, all of this is an example of the unrest of the human soul. The meaning of the parable, wandering sheep, is a picture of human stupidity. 
No animal, like I said, is more stupid and ignorant and has less sense of direction than a sheep. And you see, the sinner, really, people that are sinners are blinded. Um, the sinner is unreasoning, they're ignorant, and they're willful, and they're wandering from God. They will act on blind, illogical impulse. But the thing about this is, this is what's so wonderful about our Jesus. It's the very blindness of the sinner that moves Jesus with compassion. Now, I wish we could just camp there again, like I said, when you, walk, when you look at some of the people on these streets right outside this building. The very thing that moved him to compassion was how lost they were. He didn't get angry at their sin. You do remember in the Bible, the only people Jesus got angry at were religious people. Sinners loved him. <laughs> and again, you have to hear that. There was nothing in him that caused rejection. People did not feel rejection coming from him. They felt acceptance. Not acceptance of their sin, but acceptance, acceptance of themselves. Do you hear the difference, please? I mean, this is what I mean. When you minister to people, like it's the old story, you, it's, much, it's much easier to win a friend than it is to win an enemy. But if all you do is broadcast with your look what you disagree with and how horrible their actions are and what they're doing wrong, you're never going to have any open door to speak to them at all. And you have to see this man that we follow, like I said, this was something about him. You never registered rejection in the presence of Jesus Christ, ever. And it's the very blindness of the sinner that moves to Jesus with compassion. Point E, the sinner thinks he's better off free from God's control to do as he pleases, and ultimately he wanders further and further away from God. In their confusion, the sheep will run faster and faster towards destruction, and so does the sinner. Isaiah 53, 6 again likens us to sheep. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Number, point number one. As we look at this parable, just a few points. I'll go through this quickly. Why is the shepherd described as leaving the sheep in the wilderness? He leaves the 99, it says, in the wilderness. For he is the good shepherd, according to John 10. But the answer is found in John 10, 26, when Jesus said, But ye believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. As I have down here, remember, Jesus had been talking with the Pharisees who sat in Moses' seat, Matthew 23, 2, and claimed to be God's sheep. But they were not of his sheep. They were self-righteous, self-willed. Although they were of Abraham's seed in the flesh and nominally were of God's chosen nation, they did not hear the voice of Christ. Therefore, they were not of his sheepfold. Instead, they were out in the barren wastes of a spiritual wilderness. Now, again, You'll read later, these Pharisees, he was speaking these parables to these Pharisees. They knew, they could feel, they knew in his spirit what they were saying. And I have down here Romans chapter 9, above that verses 6 through 32, and we won't read that all. But that's the passage where Paul says, remember, not all Israel is Israel. Do you hear that? Not all sheep are sheep. In fact, the Bible says, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. You do know what that means, don't you? There are wolves that look just like sheep. In all of our churches, there are wolves. They look just like sheep, but they're not. And that doesn't mean I want you to go to church next Sunday going, <laughs> I'm discerning you right now. You know, I'm not saying to do that. But now you see, not every church is a church. Not all Israel is Israel. There's churches, and then there's, then there's the church. And at some point, you have to come to grips with that. 
That's why just because somebody names the name doesn't mean they walk the walk is the way we'd put it in street talk, right? Remember Jesus again. Okay, well, Luke 18, 9, and he spake this parable that says, unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous, but they despised others. Now, the lost sheep in this parable was not taken back to the wilderness, but it says he was taken home. Luke 15, 7 says this. Jesus said, I say unto you that likewise, likewise, in other words, the way Jesus finishes this parable, he said, likewise, I say unto you, because remember the issue is he's eating with sinners. Likewise, I say unto you that there shall be joy in heaven more over one sinner that repents, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. So again, if you tie all these verses together, again, he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves. These are the Pharisees and the scribes who are just legalistic religious zealots. And they're running everything by outward obedience, outward law, outward ritual. And Jesus is trying to talk to them and show them what the true identity of their heart is by, again, using these parables. And he said, there's more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one person that truly is repentant than over 99 people who think they got their act together. And again, we need to learn from that again. Just again, like I said, the joy of repentance, how, how much it pleases God when one of you actually gets so sick of some of your wrong activity that you actually stop asking for forgiveness and you truly do a 180 degree turn and repent. I mean, to me, that's thrilling to know that I can actually cause joy in heaven by actually saying, I'm drawing this line tonight. I'm turning from that. Because otherwise, you can just ask forgiveness for a sin for the rest of your life and be forgiven, but that's not repentance, is it? But just think about that. And this is what he's trying to communicate even to these men. Now, turn the page before you panic. The parable, of course, is a reference to the self-righteous Pharisees who despised the publicans and felt that they themselves had no need of repentance. But Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish in Luke 13, 3. The parable teaches God's, this parable, the parable of, of, of the lost sheep is intended to teach God's interest in individuals. Not even the cruelest sinner is left to the mercies of men. God seeks him continuously, and God has unbounded joy at his recovery. Now, this is the sinner that God's after. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. As the sheep was in exhaustion, powerless to return, so the sinner is helpless. You do understand. Remember, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this world has blinded literally the eyes of those people, lest they should see the glorious light of the gospel. Now let me tell you something. I know you know this, but hear me. If you're blind, you can't see. And this is where prayer and all these things come in. Some of these people out here that we try to witness to, you have to always keep these things in remembrance. They're blind. The God of this world has blinded them. They actually don't, can't see yet that what they're doing is wrong. I mean, they just can't see it. Again, 
as the sheep was in exhaustion, powerless to return, so the sinner is helpless. The deeper the sense of sin, the greater the sense of hopelessness of any attempt to escape from the heavy load of it. To such a sinner as this, Jesus comes bringing peace and security to their troubled and confused heart and taking him into the safety of his sheepfold. Now, again, like I said, I'm trying, I'm skipping over some of it, but I want you to go now to the parable just right in the same line. Now, he starts right up and he goes right to the parable of the lost piece of silver. And he says, either what woman having 10 pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle? Now, this, this, this one is a little more interesting. If she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. This parable is similar to that of the lost sheep. Nevertheless, it brings out additional truths. It, too, is to show the lost state of man and their need of a Savior. But here's some truths seen in the coin. Now, the silver piece represents man. And actually, silver in the Bible always stands for redemption. Gold stands for divinity, but silver stands for redemption. But the silver piece represents man. The coin was missing, which represents the lost soul. Now, this is right out of Bible college stuff here, some of the stuff that I had years ago and what have you, but I want you to listen. The fact that the coin is of silver shows that the Lord chose that which was of the highest value because gold coins were not in general use in those days, so the silver coin must be taken as the highest form of coin in general circulation. The human soul, therefore, is regarded by God as something that by its very nature very precious. Now, this is the part that struck me all those years ago when I first studied this. Like every coin is distinguished by having an imprint of the sovereign on it in those days. So every human, now think about this, every human being has the imprint of God upon them. I want you to think about that, and I'll tell you another story in a minute. Christ welcomes sinners who come to him because however dimmed the imprint may be on them, that image is still there upon them. Man. Now, when I was working with Teen Challenge, like I said, let me just tell the story real quick and run to this. We went and we did this. It was called an SOS, Save Our City. And I know city starts with C. But Teen Challenge, San Francisco. Anybody been to San Francisco? We worked what's called, uh, uh, what's called the Tenderloin, the Tenderloin District. And we had a, what they did is they rented this old shop, like a shop front like down here that was, that was closed. And it was, it, was called, it was on 134 Taylor Street in the heart of the Tenderloin. Now, San Francisco, you know, has the highest uh, population of homosexuals in all of America. I, I, when I was at this place, it blew my ever-living mind. I mean, and we, what we did is we, had, we were all sent out in teams of threes, and we witnessed people on the streets. We, we were in the federal building in the federal square one day, and like I said, I, I was watching these 54, 8, 54, 50, you know, 50, 60-year-old men in three-piece suits hugging and kissing and putting their tongues in each other's mouths and all those wonderful things, you know. And, uh, and then they took us to, like, Folsom Street, and Folsom Street blew my mind. I mean, Folsom Street in San Francisco is wall-to-wall -wall homosexuals. And, I mean, wall-to-wall. -wall. And, I mean, every shop, I mean... I remember, this is way back when, I'm talking about 22 years ago, and I remember in the shop, they had dolls, and they had Freddy the Flasher doll, they had the Gay Bob doll, <laughs> and all this stuff, but I mean, all, and they were all like teen, like uh, college age young men, and where they cruise all the stuff, all these, all the homosexuals. And uh, 
then these police, I, don't want, I can't even tell you all of this part because it would just be too offensive to you. They took us to this uh, one district. They said that's the end of the line for, there's such a progression of depravity. And the end of the line is there's these bars that are saddle masochistic bars where these guys go and, and people, oh, I don't want to say it. They, well, they, permit, they perform acts on stage to the point where they actually murder or kill somebody. And the people that watch these things get sexual gratification, I'll just put it that way, while they watch other people kill somebody. And the police took us into these places and said they find their bodies in the river and stuff like this. And I mean, you just, my mind was going tilt, but because of my size in those days, because in those days I still had muscles, you know, before atrophy. <laughs> and you know, because of my past, my background, what have you, they put me and another guy, and we, we'd work this, we'd work the streets there in the Tenderloin uh, every night, and we'd have uh, all these teams go out, and when you'd witness people, you'd bring them back into this storefront area, and they'd, would, we'd give them coffee and donuts or something like that, and take them in the back room, show them the cross and the switchblade, the film you know that made uh, Teen Challenge so, so famous. But then they'd close the thing down, and all the teams would stay in this dormitory of a college, except for me and another guy, because I, me and the other guy, this other guy was a big dude, and we, they needed somebody to protect the area. <laughs> So they thought they'd pick me and somebody else to stay in this place all week. You have to understand, total windows, no curtains, no anything. This street never stops. At any given moment on the streets, you're looking at every street corner, and I am not exaggerating, every street corner had a minimum of 15 to 20 prostitutes on it, male and female. Every street corner would have sometimes what would break my heart, I'm not kidding, is I'm talking about 13 and 14-year-old call girls I always remember this one girl we walked up to, and I, I looked at her, and I said, you do not have to live this way. And I can remember to this day how she was just shaking. She was so, so just taken by fear because of whoever the pimps were and what have you. And she said, you don't understand. You don't understand. I, I can't. I can't. I mean, just a little a, a runaway, a little 13-year-old runaway, beautiful little blonde girl. And I remember my heart. I mean, because you have to understand, I was young in the Lord then, too, and part of me, you know, would have loved to have, to minister to these men. <laughs> um, but anyhow, I saw so much stuff there. I, I, you know, we had to stay there all night long, and the people would walk back and forth. I mean, one night, one day, this is, I'm not telling you a joke, one day, all these big buildings in San Francisco, I'm standing on the street with another guy, two of the guys. A guy runs down a stairwell from a street. He's got a machine gun. And he goes, and I mean, unloads, it just sprays the wall. And I mean, everybody hits the ground. Trust me, God's man of faith and power. I was on my face in a hot New York second. And the guy then throws the gun up in the air and screams, and just, just, in, just insane, just run, you know, runs down the street. I mean, this was normal. And this funny thing about Taylor Street, it's right off Broadway, like the West End of London, where people go to all these big shows. You gotta be kidding me. Where people go to all these big shows and stuff like this. And people in their dress clothes and stuff like this would like just brush themselves off and go, okay, now where are we gonna have dinner? Like it was normal. But I always remember this one old man. I remember this one old fellow we brought in. This guy, have you seen the homeless where they have like 35 pairs of clothes on? And this old fellow, we brought this old man in. These, somebody did. And we sat with him and gave him coffee donuts, talked to him. And he was just so gentle. But he was about 65 years old and he was intelligent. But all I can remember is how he said, no, no. He said, I like my life the way it is. I like my life the way it is. And we tried to talk to him. We, he, he, his, his ankle was swollen. I never, his ankle was swollen the size of a melon. I don't know what had happened. And just, it just broke my heart, you know. 
And I remember he walked out. He wouldn't let us take him to a home or anything like that. So we, and anyhow, they left, he left. The place closed. Everybody leaves except for me and this guy. And so we walked down. There's a liquor store in the corner. We'd walk down there and get like a sandwich or something. This was, everything stopped at 2 a.m. in the morning as far as everybody left. So it was about 2.30. And I walked down to this guy's liquor store to get a drink and to get a sandwich. And I looked down the alley. And I saw this old man that we'd been trying to talk to a couple hours before. And he was asleep in the gutter. And two men were standing over him urinating on him. And I remember, and all I could hear him saying is, I like my life the way it is. And I, 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 I did that. I worked that stuff for 14 days. And there's, I'm not even telling you the tip of the iceberg of stuff that I experienced and I saw. When I got home from there, I got in my shower and I went into convulsions. I began to weep so hard. I literally, I was convulsing so hard. I thought I was going to die. And I couldn't. I wept for probably an hour and a half without exaggeration. It was the first time in my life I, what I experienced was this phrase that you will have heard. It was the first time in my life that I heard the cry of the lost. I actually saw that people had made the decision to go to hell. And it broke me in a million pieces. Now, the reason I said all that is because this old man, because of this parable of the coin, every human being, no matter how foul they are, Every coin, if I pull a coin out of my pocket, you pull a coin out of your pocket or purse, it's got on one side the imprint of the sovereign of this nation on it, doesn't it? Every human being in that street, no matter how foul they are, was created by God and still has the imprint of the sovereign on them, no matter how foul, how urine-soaked they are. And that's what blows my mind. But now if you jump to this and what Christ is saying, now listen to it. Point C, a lost coin has no power to change its position, but it must lie there till it's picked up. But this is the point that I wanted to see and why I told you that story. But a coin, think about this. Does a coin lose its value simply because it's lost? No, it doesn't. Even so, the immortal spirit of man continues to be precious in the sight of God, even when separated from him. But the problem is, point E, the lost coin is useless until it's in the hands of the owner. Right? Think about it. Coins, if they're lost, they have the value, but they're of use to nobody. It's only when they're in the possession of somebody they have any value. And this is what the story is with all of us. And what, Je what is Jesus trying to say to these Pharisees about this lost coin? He said... Point F, in time, a lost coin will become tarnished. The image, the superscription imprinted upon it will become obscured the longer it's lost. And just so, the individual separated from God soon loses the beauty of holiness and is quickly tarnished by the wickedness of the world around it. Money in use, money that's in use has the power to bring increase. But when it's lost, any hope of increase is sacrificed. Now, the Bible says that the woman, in this parable, Jesus said the woman begins her search. Why a woman? The lost sheep has a shepherd, remember, in the first parable. The prodigal son has a father. They're both representative of the Lord, but the woman represents the church in this parable. That's what they'll teach anywhere you go. The woman represents the church, the bride of Christ, and she discovers one coin missing. She lights a candle, and a candle in the Bible is the type of the word of the Lord. 
So I want you to think on those things after we get done here, when you, like when you look at this happening. The woman in this parable is a type of the church. The candle is the word of the Lord. She discovers one coin missing. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. Now turn to the next page real quickly. You see, what this symbolizes to us is that it is the church that is to hold up the light of God's word. The candle is carried first into one part of the house and then the other. This represents the church's part in seeking lost souls. Men do not readily search the Bible for themselves for their souls to be saved. It is the duty of the church to carry the candle about until its light falls on that person that is in darkness that he may be found and recovered. Now, very basically, in other words, this is why that simple statement that comes from your heart, if it really comes from your heart, when you really begin to communicate that God loves you, that begins to push the darkness out. Remember, we keep, I quote that verse over and over again when I pray, the entrance of God's word brings light. God's word is light. Where there's darkness, light will dispel it if we'll just keep bringing the light of God's word. But we're to be living epistles as well. The woman searched, it is the duty of the church to carry the candle about until its light falls on that person that is in darkness that he may be found and recovered. The woman searched diligently and so, much the so must the church work with all its might to fulfill the great commission. Jesus again declares the joy among angels and men at the salvation of one lost soul. We are to search the dark places of the world with the light of the gospel. And sometimes we have to go amongst the lowest of the low those coated with the dust and the mire of sin and recover them from the filth of the world, the flesh and the devil. And God himself, I know, he, he feels a sense of loss. Just like you do. If you know that you have a coin or you've lost, it's lost, but you know you, it's somewhere in the house. There's that something that you just carry with you that just agitates you and frustrates you and will make you sad. And if you can understand that God feels a true sense of loss while the sinner is away from him. I mean, God is love, remember. God is love. With man, life may be cheap, but never with God. I had somebody ask a question once. They said, if you had one of the most foul, homeless, whatever, like I said, urine-soaked, messed up, drunk, perverted dude on the planet Earth here, and you had 10 of the most valuable racehorses in all the Earth, and you had to choose which needed to be put down, which would you put down? You see what I'm trying to say? We shouldn't even have to hesitate. But, but the thing is, you can look at a person and you go, and you look at these incredible, valuable horses, and you can think, well, they have far more value than this. But this, all, this is what he's trying to communicate. There's so much more in this stuff than we realize. You see, man, no matter how lost they are, have never lost the imprint of the sovereign. And somehow that's got to register in our spirit. God feels a sense of loss while the sinner's away from him. With man, life may be cheap, but never with God made. It, man is made with the image of God stamped upon him. He is intended. Every man and woman is intended to fulfill God's purpose, to share his glory, and to enjoy God forever. Therefore, it is a horrible loss to the maker that a man should fall away from his high calling to be lost forever. Amen. Okay, we're going to stop right there because the parable of the prodigal is way too much to get into, and we're at the end of this hour already, okay? Father, 
help us to not be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and help us to never, ever get caught up in low-level thinking where we see more wrong than we see good in people. And help us, Father, to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, in all these matters and have and place the same value on life, no matter how dirty it may look, that you do. In the name of Jesus, Father, this was your life, and this is the life you've called us to walk in. So we ask you to help us somehow make this transition, this step to where we begin to be conformed to the image of Christ. We thank you for helping us in this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.